Um, we're, we're continuing in through the, the book of, of Philippians. And uh, just to go over a little bit of the context again, the book of Philippians is written by a guy named Paul. And Paul uh, was famous in the Bible because he wrote most of the New Testament, a lot of the New Testament. And what he would do, he was a guy who um, God changed his life in a radical way. He was very passionate, very zealous about his religion that he grew up. He was a Jewish guy, and he was so, he, he loved his, his Jewish roots. And, um, you know, he was on his way to uh, persecute the Christian church. And it's called the Damascus Road. He's on his way to a place called Damascus. And um, he has been given these papers by the Jewish church and authority to be able to go into this Christian church and put these people in jail and accuse them of heresy and all these kind of things. And on his way to stand against the church, Jesus encounters him. And he has this literally life-changing moment. And in this moment, God changes Paul's life. He, he transforms Paul from the inside out. And no longer does he become so passionate about his religion. He becomes passionate about his relationship with Christ. And what we often say in this church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he makes it his life's mission to preach the gospel of Jesus wherever he goes. And so he finds himself writing to a church in this city called Philippi. And he is probably about 10 years prior planted this church. And this church started from um, a bunch of people getting saved. A bunch of people who necessarily wouldn't all be kind of you would find in the same group. You find this lady named Lydia who was kind of a fashionista. Have you ever seen The Devil, Dev, Devil Wears Prada? You ever seen that movie? If you haven't seen it, it's kind of fun. I can't, I can't really endorse it as a pastor. You're not really supposed to say that. But it, 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 there's, this, there's this woman who she, she determines what, what uh, the new fashion's going to be for the new season, you know, and she's really high up in the fashion industry. And Lydia was kind of the same kind of wealthy, well-known for her being able to sell uh, fabrics of purple, and that was really rare in the day because it was, a rare, uh, it was really expensive. And so you find this woman well-to-do, and then you find a, a slave girl who was possessed with an evil spirit following Paul and Silas, keep de declaring out, these are men who proclaim the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she's not saying it because she necessarily wants Jesus to be exalted, but the, the, the demon, I, so to speak, within her is trying to cause confusion and trying to mock Christ. And Paul just has enough of it, and he casts out the demon in the name of Jesus, and then she's set free. And then uh, the, the owner of the girl throws them in prison because now the money that they make off of her fortune-telling, she no longer does that anymore. So you have this fashionista, well-to-do-in-society woman, and then you have this slave girl, and then when they get thrown into jail, they, Paul and Silas, you know the story, they're, they're in shackles and in chains, right? And then what are they doing? They're worshiping Jesus. They're just singing. They're singing hymns. They're singing songs. And in the midst of them worshiping, lifting their eyes to Christ, all of a sudden, the Bible says the, sh the, the, the jail shakes and, you know, their chains and shackles fall off. And the Philippian jailer says, oh no, please, please, don't, don't run away. Don't. And they said, don't worry, don't worry, because he's about to kill himself because he knows 
if the people that he's guarding, if they get set free, he'll be in trouble. And Paul says, no, 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 don't, don't, don't kill yourself. It's going to be all right. We're not leaving. We're not going to take off. Actually, let me tell you about a man named Jesus. And the Philippian jailer comes to know Christ. And then the Bible says his whole household comes to know Jesus. And they become disciples of Jesus. And so you see this church in a city called Philippi with all different kinds of people. It's birthed out of these conversion stories, not unlike our church here today where we all come from different backgrounds and church histories and families and socionomics and eth ethic, um, ethnicities and all. We're not all the same kind of people, but in God's beauty and in his majesty, he creates a church that is, you know, from all over the place. And you see this here in the book of Philippi. And so Paul's writing them this letter. Now, let me, let me just jump into the chapter we're about to get into today. Imagine your friend is Paul, and imagine you are, we are, the church in Philippi. And we get news that Paul is in jail. So what do we do? The Bible says that the church in Philippi sends a guy named Epaphroditus. Remember last week I told you all to say, I am Epaphroditus. Remember how I made you guys say that? And the first time you just really sucked at it, and then the second time you did really good. And so it's almost like, I am Spartacus, right? Kind of a thing. Made you say, I am Epaphroditus. And so the, the church sends this guy named Epaphroditus. It, it'd be like if you found out that Jeff was in jail, and then we sent Bernie on, you know, we were, Bernie, go, go tell, go find out what's going on with Jeff, you know? How's he doing? Uh, I, he's in chains. Like, send him some money and, and give him these, these food. And, and Na would probably give him her persimmons, right? You ever get a persimmon from Na? She'd be like, give, give Jeff these persimmons. You know, I've, I've been like shining them up and they're at the perfect ripeness. And we'd all be like writing letters to, to Jeff and say, Jeff, how you doing, man? Hang in there, buddy. And so Bernie would take all of these gifts, all the letters, the finances, all of these things that we collectively get together because we love Jeff. And we're like, Jeff, I hope he's, he's doing okay. And, and then Bernie comes back from an 800-mile journey. There's no airplanes, maybe a horse or a donkey or something, a lot of it probably on foot. So these are months and months and months of travel. Bernie goes and he comes back. And Bernie, he has this letter for us. That's Southwest Chino, right? What are we all doing? We're like, ah, open it, open it, man. Tell us what's going on. Tell, how, how, how does Jeff look? Is he, is he still really tall? Did he shrink a little bit in prison? You know, did he lose a bunch of weight? Is he, is he, you know, is he being treated okay? Or, you know, are the chains too tight? Are they being nice to him? What's going on? And I think for a lot of us here, the way that we would expect to hear news back from Bernie about Jeff says a lot to do with how we expect in our own selves how we suffer at times in life. I know I do this. Marianne says, I'm a pessimist. And I say, babe, I'm not a pessimist. I am a realist. And she goes, that's what a pessimist says. And I say, no, well, what you're saying is what somebody who's got their head in the clowns and thinks everything's just going to be all fine and nunky-dory, that's what an idealist says, right? And we go back and forth, and I guess I could be a pessimist, right? Just going to admit that before you guys. And some of us here this morning, when we get this letter back from Jeff, from Bernie, and he's about to read it, we're going to expect 
Jeff to say things like, oh, you guys don't even know. You don't even know how hard this has been. You don't even, like, I just, I just long for just a moment of peace or just, just some, the food that I used to eat in my own, my freedom to be able to walk wherever I want to walk. You guys, I wish I'd just rather be dead. Some of us might expect Jeff to say something like that. If you know Jeff, you probably wouldn't write anything like that in the letter. I might say something like that in the letter. Or some of us might be, you know, on the really idealistic, oh, he's probably loving life, you know? Like my wife, I go, babe, how's, how's COVID for you? This isolation time, she goes, it's not that bad, you know? <laughs> I kind of enjoy it. I kind of love the fact that my family has to be all together all the time, and, you know, there's nowhere for them to go, so... It's forced family time. I can do this for long. And I go, are you even a Christian? <laughs> and depending on what we think Paul's response is, probably says a lot about how we might suffer in our own way, our own propensities. But the beautiful thing that Paul does is he, he doesn't allow his letter to be subjective about himself. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that's true. And what my encouragement to us today is, friends, is I want us to look at, you know, it, it, we're, we're calling this sermon series, a series through Philippians, pursuing resilient joy in the gospel, right? When we called it joy. How do we have a joy that's unjaded? How do we keep a joy that is resilient? How could we objectively write truths of who God is if you were, so to speak, in a prison writing to your church family members saying, hey, I want to remind you of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can Paul write such beautiful, truthful words to the church in Philippi, but also to encourage us 2,000 years later now, how can these words still be true for us today? Was Paul just some kind of like superhero Christian? You know what I mean? Like we often think of Paul as like, well, that, that's Paul. Of course he's going to say what he says because he's Paul. Or was it something deeper? Was it something more objective instead of ratherly subjective to who Paul was. I think the way that Paul actually answers this helps us really understand how do we keep our joy in the midst of whatever's going on. Some of us here this morning, I, I feel it. I feel this, so to speak, chains emotionally. This has been the hardest, I mean, I, I feel like I keep saying this often, and you're going to hear me say it probably more, but this has been a tough season. I was just with a friend, yes, two days ago. We were hanging out, a, a couple of pastors, we got together and we said, hey, I think we just need to encourage one another. <laughs> and we're all like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's get together, let's sit around a fire. And just let's encourage one another. And one of the, you know, Alan Frau was there, and Alan, in his, Alan's like Oprah, okay? In the sense of he just knows how to make people cry. 
you know, so, and, I, and you could tell. We were all, like, talking about whatever. It was just nonchalant, you know, guy stuff. And then all of a sudden, I, here it goes. I know what Alan's going to do. And he just, he goes, hey, guys, I just want to ask a question. I want to ask three things. There's always three, okay? Pastors always have three. He goes, I want to know how your soul is. I want to know how your wife's soul is. And I want to know what the evidences of grace have been even in the midst of this time. And we were all sharing it. And I remember trying to talk and trying to express what was going on in my heart. And you don't always have the words to articulate, right, what you're feeling. But one of the guys shared something. And he goes, you know, I realize some of the frustration for me over this time has been the fact that I've had to rely on the daily bread of God. And when he said that, I was like, man, that is really, I think, where my soul is too. See, I think at times what we do is we take for granted that we don't often have to say, Lord, I just need the daily bread that you're offering me in this moment, and that will be enough. Because we live in a society, in a culture, where we have a plethora of bread at our, our disposal. And we get so used to living in an environment or in a system where we, I mean, go into any grocery store and you could, if you want bread, you can find 30 different kinds of bread. This one's going to be gluten-free. This one's going to have extra gluten. This one's going to be sourdough. This one's going to be rye. This one's going to be pumpernickel. I don't know how you say all these things, right? And we get so used to the fact that we can choose from all of these kind of different things, and we take that kind of understanding into our Christianity, and when we come into a season where we feel like God is saying, no, my daily bread is enough to sustain you for this only moment, it's painful. I'm feeling the pain of that. I'm sure a lot of us here are feeling that pain. And that's not even a bad thing. That's not a bad thing to rely on the daily bread that God gives us for the moment enough to sustain us for the season that we're in because he is faithful to do that. But I know it goes beyond just that. I know that in this room we're feeling like, is it okay to have joy? I don't even know how to joy, have joy. I feel like I'm starting to get jaded. I feel like I'm getting angry. I feel like sadness is taking over. I just want things to be the way they're supposed to be. I don't want to wear a face mask when I'm singing. And Paul helps us, and he gives us some objective truths in this book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. We're going to stay in chapter 1, but we're just going to go through these verse by verse. This is what he says. And, and let me, let me, I'm going to try to help us give, give us some points that I think Paul would encourage us here this morning. If Jeff were Paul, and he was writing back through Bernie to give us the letter. I think he would give us a few things to say, hey, Southwest Chino, don't, don't let your life become jaded. Don't, don't become cynical and sarcastic or afraid that your joy could be taken from you. These are some reminders. And I think the first one that Paul helps us understand is if we want a joy that's unjaded, we have to understand that we have to live for something bigger than ourselves. Look at verse 12. This is what he says. But what's he going to say? What's he going to say? Open the letter. What's he going to tell me? He says this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Whoa! Wait, wait, wait. That's not what I expected Paul to write. I thought he was going to say, like, 
send help now. Get the dynamite, blow the bars off the jail, right? And he says, no, 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 guys, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really happened to serve the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, that thing when I was on the road to Damascus and I got knocked off my horse and I was all like proud about my religion and then Jesus in that moment changed me from the inside out and then he set me on a course to live a life that was bigger than just my passions. Yes, it's true, I'm suffering. It's, it's, I don't like it. But let me encourage you to keep your joy. And the way you do that is remember you've got to live for something that's bigger than you. Now, let me, let me give some handles to what I'm trying to help us understand here this morning. Often what we do, we think that if we are in chains, so to speak, if we are living in a season of life where it feels like I'm chained up, where it feels like everything's not going my way, where circumstances are, you know, that, that offer I put in the house keeps, get keeps, keeps getting rejected. I'm, not, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Or my car keeps falling apart. Surely, God, this is a sign that I am not doing your will. See, Paul doesn't allow that kind of thinking to come into his understanding of God's will nor the joy of God in his life. And what he doesn't do is say, guys, you gotta, I must have sinned somewhere. I must have done something wrong because God is punishing me by allowing me to rot in a jail in Rome. What God's will is for my life is for me to flourish in the name of Jesus. What God's will is for me is to not have chains. What God's will is for me is to be able to have freedom and to do whatever I want because if it, if it wasn't, then why would I be suffering here in this prison? And friends, if we take that kind of understanding into the joy of, of how we live our lives or God's will and intention in our lives, we will be always wrong. Because having chains does not mean that we are outside of the will of God. Now, yes, we make decisions. And some of us, if you break the law, you'll probably go to prison. But that's not why Paul is suffering in chains. He's suffering because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that he has to live for something bigger than himself because there will be circumstance after circumstance after circumstance that will tempt him and try to whisper in his ear and say, if you were doing the will of God, you wouldn't be suffering in these chains. But Paul knows better. Now the other side of that is, sometimes we think because we're not in chains, we must be doing the will of God. See how easy my life is? God's just blessing me. I don't have a care in the world. Everything, everything just works out for me. And I would say to you, friend, if that's how you believe, you interpret God's will for your life and, and understand joy, then you too are mistaken. Because sometimes God calls us on a road that calls us to be shackled. Sometimes God calls us to walk on a road that will lead to suffering. Yet Paul miraculously keeps his joy in the midst of the chains. How? It's because he knows his life is meant to point to something bigger than himself. 
You ever, you ever meet a grumpy old person? Yeah, of course, right? <laughs> My wife tells me I'm going to be a grumpy grandpa. She says, you, babe, you're going to be the grandpa who's always like, those darn kids, right? Whenever they come over, they ruin everything, you know? And I'm like, no, I'm going to be so excited. I'm going to spoil them. I'm going to spoil my grandkids. So why? So I can send them back to their parents. And see, see, you're going to reap what you sow. But when we meet an old, old grumpy person, we go, oh, you know, the whole get off my lawn kind of a guy, Right? We go, it makes sense, because that person probably experienced a lot of hardship. That person probably, maybe they were in a war, and they, they saw their friends die, and you know, they've had to earn every penny, and this darn generation just throws change on the street. You know, when I, in my day, we had to save money, and, and we go, yeah, we get it. And that's somebody who's allowed their circumstance to shape their joy. You ever meet an old person who's not grumpy? We have a lot of those in our church. I'm not going to say who's old. Well, actually, I probably am. And they're not here this morning. You know who's like that? Mike and Lori O'Brien. They're not old. Mike and Lori, you're not old. You're mature. They're older than me. And you know what I love about Mike and Lori? They've led churches. They've been in ministry for over 30 years, some almost 40 years. They've, been, I've, they've shared stories with us and talked about times where it was great. And then they've talked about years where it felt like this was really, really hard work. People would say nasty things about them. Lies or decisions that they made as church leaders they didn't like so people tried to rally against them and you know you know what i i love about mike and Lori? they're not jaded they believe the best about everybody they love people they have every right so to speak to be grumpy and to be guarded that's really what jaded is it's this guarding of your heart because you've been hurt before and so you're not going to let anybody in right? Mike hasn't done that. Lori hasn't done that. Paul didn't do it. Why are Mike and Lori not grumpy, get off my lawn kind of people? It's because they know that their life, there's something bigger than themselves. There's something bigger than their comfort. There's something bigger than their circumstances. There's something bigger than their happiness. And that's the joy of Jesus and seeing the name of Jesus exalted and lifted up. And I want to encourage you this morning, friends. If you are finding yourself, and I'm finding myself, I am, I'm putting myself in this category, or I'm starting to get cynical, starting to get frustrated and angry, and oh, this world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? The, you know, starting to feel this jadedness rise up in my heart. Can I encourage you, and I'm encouraging myself this morning, is to live for something bigger than your own comfort and happiness? Can you, can you say, Lord, help me to live for the thing that actually matters the most? And that's you and your gospel. 
How many, how many remember if I put my hope and my trust in you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior, how beautiful and precious that is and what a gift that is? Help me not to look at my chains, so to speak. Help me not to look at my circumstances around me. Help me not to think about the terrible food I might be receiving or all the things I'm missing out on or the fact that I have to wear a mask while I sing or what all of these things, Lord. Help me get my eyes off of myself Help me to stop belly button gazing and lift my eyes on you. And remember that the reason why I exist is for a purpose that's bigger than me. How's that? Is that okay, guys? Number two, I think what Paul helps us understand here is that God's purpose for your life cannot be taken. He says this in verses 13 through 14. He says, I want to tell you, it's, it's, all of what's happened to me is for the advancement of the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, what Paul doesn't say is because now I'm in chains, God has called me to preach the gospel of Jesus, but I can no longer do that because the only way that, that can look for me to preach the gospel of Jesus is that I'm not in chains. No, what Paul does is he says, actually, what has happened for me is actually advancing the gospel, and no matter where I am, no matter what happens to me, the call that God has given me, the purpose that God has put in my life will never, ever be taken away from me. No one can take it away, no person and no circumstance. How do you feel about that in your life? How do you feel when you feel like you've got your, all your ducks lined up in a row? Finally, I got all my ducks lined up. It feels like everything's about to like line up, and all of a sudden, the wrench goes in the gears, <clears throat> comes to a halt. What do you do? That's it. It's over. That's the end of my life. God obviously doesn't care anymore. Or do you have a confidence knowing that no matter where or what or when or who or how, that what God has placed in you, your purpose, your calling, cannot be taken from you? I want, I want you guys to do something here. Just humor me for a second, okay? Everybody look down at your feet, all right? Maybe put your feet on the floor. Now, where are your feet? They're right there. Guess what? You can't be anywhere else. I have a friend who was driving back from the beach. He had just recently moved from South Africa to the States, and he was trying to figure out where, how to get, and what, all these kind of things. And him and his wife, they're like, let's go down to the beach area. We're going to enjoy it. So they find the beach. And then on their way home, they lived in Diamond Bar, I think at the time, and they're trying to figure out how to get back and they stop at a gas station. That's what we do. That's what women do. Guys don't stop. They just figure it out, right? But he like listens to his wife. She's like, babe, pull over. And he's like, okay, we're lost. Gets out, asks the guy at the gas station, hey, um, I'm trying to get back to Diamond Bar. The guy says, what? You can't get there from here. So my friend goes, well, this is where I'm at. I can't be anywhere else. 
And sometimes we take that attitude into life and we say, that's the goal over there. It felt like I had a straight path. It was opening up, but all of a sudden, circumstantially, boom, this obstacle got in my way and we ask for directions or we look inside internally for our own moral compass and what we tell ourselves is, I can't get there from here. See, Paul doesn't do that. What he does is he looks down at his feet and he says, well, this is where I'm at. Did God come to me and say, hey, um, Paul, I'm going to change your life. Here's, here's the plan, Paul. I'm going to change your life. You're going, to, you're going to meet me on this road. You're really passionate about what you're doing. I'm going to meet you on this road, though, and I'm going to change you from the inside out. And then from there, I want you to go all around the known world to the best of your ability, and I want you to preach the gospel of Jesus, and I want you to plant churches. But hold on. If you happen to be imprisoned, I'm going to revoke that calling on your life. Because... I'm not big enough for your call to remain on your life if you get imprisoned. So, Paul, just want you to know, don't get imprisoned. No. See, God never did anything like that. God doesn't do that with Paul, nor, he, nor does he do that with us. What he says is, I've called you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever your feet are. In this, in this time what happened was Paul is under praetorium guard. These are like special elite Roman soldiers. And a lot of historians would say and commentators would say that what would happen here is that Paul would get chained to a Roman guard every four hours because the guy can only be about his wits for about four hours. Man, being chained to somebody you don't know for longer than that. So they want these guys to be fresh, be on their guard, be serious, kind of like the, the British guys with the big black pickles on their heads, you know, who stand in front of the whatever. Um, and so they're, they're all about it. And you can only do this for about four hours before you start to get, you know, distracted. So every four hours, somebody comes in and says, hey, what's up? I'm Spartacus, right? And, and you're like, oh, well, I'm Paul. Does Paul go, oh, Paul, please unchain me. No, you know what Paul does? I could just see it. You know what Paul probably is doing? He's like, Lord, Jesus, thank you for Spartacus who's chained to me. And, and you could just see his cheekiness, his, his almost sarcastic kind of prayer. Lord, let him, let him hear my prayer about how he needs you, Jesus. Let, it, let, him, let, him, let him turn from his worshiping of hundreds of gods and putting hope in false idols. Lord, let his heart be softened to you. I mean, imagine Paul doing this over and over. And he, it says here that the Roman guards knew why Paul was enchained, and they knew it was because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you think they knew that? I guarantee you that Paul was saying, Spartacus, Maximus, I don't know any other like famous, Leonidas, any, us, all these guys, let me tell you about Jesus. And whether they accepted Christ into their heart or not, they knew why he was suffering. Paul looks down at his feet and goes, I can't be anywhere else. This is where I am. The call of God on my life has not changed, so therefore I will continue to do what God has called me to do, no matter my circumstances. How do we keep our joy from getting jaded? 
is we don't put our joy, joy is only joy if you have the right circumstances. No, joy overcomes no matter what the circumstances are because the joy is rooted in the calling that God has given us, not in the calling, so to speak, that circumstances are speaking over us. Does that make sense? Friends, you will never have a greater calling or purpose than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That might be an affront to you this morning. But our purpose as Christians is to glorify God. And the way that we bring Him glory is that we make disciples of Jesus. You say, wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm a mom at home with my kids. I feel like God's called me to be a mom. Yes, He has. And He's called you, mom, to make disciples of Jesus. Guess who your first disciples are? Your kids. Wait, wait, wait. I'm a, I'm a banker. I... I, I I administrate a bank, I handle with finances, I do all these things. Yes, you know why you're a banker? Because God made you a banker, because God has called you to look down at your feet when you walk into the bank and say, Susie who handles loans, Jason who handles money stuff, you know, he's called you to call, make them disciples of Jesus. That will never change no matter where your feet are. You know, my dad, when he was dying, his Father's Day, so I'm going to brag on my dad a little bit. When, sorry. when he's laying in the deathbed, we fly to Michigan. You know what every nurse would say about him? This is the kindest man. He's always full of happiness and joy. You know, and not even the Christian nurses. There were a lot of Christian nurses, but not all of them were. You know, they would say, he just wanted to pray with me. Not, he wouldn't say pray for me. He said, I want to pray for you. Why? Because my dad knew, no matter where his feet were, whether they were strong physically and he was able to walk on his own, or whether he was laying in his deathbed in a hospital, he knew that his calling could not be taken from him. That's the same for you and me, friends. If you're a Christian this morning, it'll never be taken and that should give us joy. That should give us a security that doesn't allow us to become jaded in our circumstances. Is this easy? No way. This is super, super hard. Well, then, is it impossible? No. Well, what are the means of grace to encourage me, Kelly? Look at the person sitting next to you. That's, 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 that's one way we do it. You say, hey, I'm really starting to put my hope in my circumstances. Will you encourage me? That's why I got together with a group of pastors this week and just said, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. Can you guys just pray for me? And I sat there feeling a little guilty when we were all praying, and I didn't pray because I just felt like I don't have anything in my tank left to pray. And I just sat there, I listened to the prayers and I soaked them up because that's what I needed. And some of us here, you need to be that prayer for that person because that person might be saying, my circumstances are hard. 
And he said, that's okay, let me pray for you. Amen? Last one is that we need to love God's glory more than our own glory. Paul says this in verse 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. I don't even know how that works, but they were doing it. Not sincerely, uh, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Holy cow. If that was me, and I heard about somebody trying to proclaim the gospel, and it was doing harm to me the way they were doing it, and they were doing it for the wrong reasons, man, let me tell you, I'd be really indignant about that and try to let everybody know how wrong they were and sinful and etc. You know what Paul does? He, does? he just goes, whatever, it doesn't matter, no big deal. Why? Because they're proclaiming Christ. And if they're proclaiming Christ, and then people are hearing the good news of Jesus, and they're, they're tra- being transformed from the inside out just like I was, then in that I will rejoice. Why? But wait, wait, wait a minute, Paul. What if, you know, I, I, it just doesn't make sense because like, I feel it sometimes like I do all the hard work, I do all the stuff, and then nobody recognizes me for all the hard work I've done, and then somebody comes in and they go, whoop, that was me. That's not fair. Paul says, yeah, it's not fair. But guess what? It's not about my glory. It's about God's glory. Did God get glorified? Well, yes. Well, then, who cares? What do you mean, who cares? It's not fair. It's unjust. That's not righteous. Paul says, is God being glorified righteous? Yeah. Is God being glorified just? Yeah. Did people come to know Jesus? Yeah. Then what's the problem? You know what the problem is? You wanted the glory. You wanted to be the person who was known for getting these people saved or did that report so well. You want the promotion. Paul just says, again, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. You want to know why you don't have joy? It's because you live your life for selfishness. If you're wrestling this morning, feeling like your joy can be taken from you, if you're wrestling this morning, feeling like your joy is on a tightrope, about to teeter-totter off into despair, possibly part of that is because you are looking to be self-satisfied for your own glory. And when you say, it's not about me, I surrender it all, I'll give it up to God because I trust that God is good and that he's in control and that God's good will come about it. We sang it this morning. You make all things work together for my good, right? We just sang that this morning. We're like, yeah, yeah, yes you do, but only in this circumstance. 
because I want some of the glory. Hallelujah. Paul just goes, what about you? What about you? You're, you're wretched anyway. You're deserving of death anyway. The very fact that God even keeps you alive, keeps breath in your lungs, your heart beating, should be all you need to be thankful for and joyful for. But he does even more than that. He doesn't just keep you alive. He gives you a calling and a purpose and a joy that can't be taken from you if you don't put your hope in your own glory. Paul just says, so what? Think about it right now this morning. What are the things that you're working so hard for that you'll get the results and that you'll get the reciprocation from? We do this in our marriage. Well, if he would, then I would. If she wouldn't do this, then I wouldn't have to. Did Jesus treat us that way? See, what Jesus did is, in spite of you treating me like dirt, I'm still going to love you and I'm going to give you more than you deserve. Why shouldn't we do that in our marriage? When Marianne treats me poorly, very rarely. When I treat her poorly, more or less rare. <laughs> is Marianne supposed to say, you treat me worse than I treat you, so therefore I'm going to just chill on the niceness. I'm going to dial that back because it needs to be even. No. What she does is she says, my job as a wife is to show you the love of Christ no matter how you treat me. Whoa, 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 what if, what if, Marianne, what if you don't get anything in return from Kelly? That's okay. Why? Because I get it from Jesus first. And therefore, what I get from Jesus, I give to Kelly. Not just, hello, not just husband and wife, jobs, whatever it is. Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. Yeah. Oh, come to the... Hello, Jesus. Hi. <laughs> and so what we do is we put our joy and our glory in our circumstances, in ourness, in me. And why does Jesus say something like, if you want to find your life, lose it? is because he's saying, hey, there's a joy to be had, and I don't want it to be jaded. Look at Paul. You know what? Paul's not a superhuman Christian. He's just a Christian. And that's just like you and me. And that's what we're called to do. Let's stand this morning.